Sister Ella has some family with her, and we're glad you came to be with her and with us on this very special day. We've been in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and we want to continue there today. I ask you to, if you would, take a copy of the Scriptures. If you don't have your own Bible with you, you should find one in the seat by you or in front of you, under it, or whatever. And open uh, that Bible, please, to Mark chapter 1. And before I read the passage, uh, Sister Ella, I want to say to you that I, I hope and pray this day, I've been hoping and praying that this day will be very meaningful for you. We're very thankful for you. I want you to realize uh, that the text today, I didn't really just choose this text, more or less the text chose us because we're going through a series in the Gospel of Mark. And wouldn't you know it? Didn't plan it, but wouldn't you know it? The very passage we're on is on the baptism of Jesus Christ. So I think that's pretty neat. That's, that's God's providence. <clears throat> and we often see that in the church, don't we? we? We hear something or we experience something, let's say, earlier in the day, and then later on it's just pronounced again and pronounced again. And that's not planned. That's, I mean, we try to plan our worship, but that's God's goodness to us when uh, we see his kind providence in this way. So in years to come, Sister Ella, when you think about your baptism, I want you to remember on the day you were baptized, the preacher tried to preach a sermon. The key word is tried. Tried to preach a sermon on the baptism of Jesus, and that was God's goodness, okay? Now, because we do have such a full day, I, I, I hope to make my comments briefer today. I've tried to work to that end. But that does not mean that the subject of the baptism of Jesus Christ is peripheral. In fact, it is very important in the Scriptures. When <clears throat> Judas Iscariot was to be replaced in his office in the church gathered and they discussed who would be replacing this is one of the uh, criteria that criterion that was set forth and it's in we read i'm reading from acts 1 it says beginning this person must have been with them beginning from the baptism of john until the day when he was taken up so whoever was going to fill that office as apostle had to be an eyewitness and he had to be present from the day that Christ was baptized in the Jordan till the day that he was taken and received up to glory. So you can begin to see even in that statement the critical nature, the important nature of the baptism of Jesus Christ. Now our passage today comes from Mark chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 and it, it's vintage Mark. Uh, I've talked about the way Mark writes and the, some things you find in the Gospel of Mark. Well, this is vintage Mark. In the Greek text, there's only 53 words here. He is concise in this definition and description of the baptism of Jesus Christ. It's vivid. Mark is unique in the language he uses. We'll notice this, I trust. But Mark is unique in the way he describes the heavens opening. None of the other gospel writers write it in such a vivid way as Mark will describe it for us. And the passage is packed. And it's just stuff full. It's just, it's full. So it's action-packed 
quickly moving in some ways because he uses that word immediately in here we talked about. Immediately this happens. But there are three epical events that Mark will describe in concerning the baptism of Jesus. One is the opening of heaven, of the heavens. Two is the descending of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove landing upon Christ. And third is a voice from heaven, which is an identifying voice and a voice of approbation, the approval of Jesus Christ. He is God's Son in whom he is well pleased. James Edward writes concerning these events, he said, when Jesus comes up from the water, he experiences three things that in Jewish tradition signify the inauguration of God's eschatological kingdom. So we got a, we're in some deep water here, but I'm going to be moving rather rapidly, I hope, today. Al Martin, <clears throat> commenting on this passage, said these three things. They constitute at the beginning of our Lord's ministry a significance as profound and far-reaching as do the resurrection and the ascension on the other end of our Lord's earthly ministry. So he's claiming that what we read here is just as critical, just as important in our understanding of Christ as resurrection and ascension. So with that in mind, Let's look to the Word of God and hear read from Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse number 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Let's seek the face of God in a moment of prayer. Holy Father, we're grateful for all parts of worship that have preceded this moment for the singing of hymns, the reading of Your Word, the recitation of our covenant promise, for prayers that have been made. And now, Lord, we come to hear from You in the reading and opening of Your Word. And we realize that all will be vain in this part, except You bless our feeble efforts. Please give Your servant liberty to speak clarity of thought, readiness of mind. Please give us all ears to hear. Build up your people in the most holy faith. Encourage them. Instruct them. Guide us. And for those, Lord, present that know not Christ, we pray that you would be pleased to do that which no man can do no matter how much we may want to, and that is to open the eyes of the blind and give hearing to the deaf. So, Lord, please come. Speak to us from Your Word and honor Christ, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. <clears throat> Two basic general divisions as we engage in this passage. 
One is I just want to look at the text. I want to just open the text. It's called exegete. I just want to exegete the text. Just see what it says. And then I'd like to, with God's help, maybe make some uh, statements of application in our closing thoughts. So I'll begin with verse 9, and this is what I call the ordinary events as I read the passage, the ordinary events. And we start with in those days. So when are those days? Well, if you read this account in all the various Gospels and put the information together, you read in Luke chapter 3, those days is in the 15 year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So that would be in the year A.D. 29 in those days. That's the specific timing. If I look at it in the context of both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those days is really at the high watermark of the ministry of John Baptist. People are coming from all around to the wilderness to hear John preach a message of repentance and administer uh, baptism of repentance. So it's in those days where the height of John's ministry, where large crowds are coming out to hear him and be baptized by him in the River Jordan. Secondly, we read, in those days came Jesus from Nazareth. Now, if you recall the temple, what we might call the temple incident when Jesus is 12 years old. The parents, they can't find him, and then they find him in the temple, and he's there teaching and talking with the teachers, and the teachers are just uh, amazed at the depth and depth and grasp of this, this young boy, age 12, of, of the uh, teachings of the Scriptures. But what happens after they leave? They get Jesus, the parents gather him back. What happens then? Well, he does, he's not some sort of spool prodigy. He, he doesn't just say, well, you know, I taught them in the temple. And No, we read in Luke that he went down with them, that is with his parents. He went down with them and came to Nazareth, a city of about 300 people, a blue-collar town, farmers and, and uh, mainly farmers and some other merchants, like Joseph was a carpenter, that, that type of town. He comes down to them, to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. Here is Jesus Christ, who is being submissive to your parents, to his parents. Which reminds us, of course, of the first commandment with promise to honor your father and mother that you may live a long life. uh, That God may bless you and your days may be long. So Jesus goes with his parents to Nazareth and he's submissive to his parents and he matures. The passage tells us that he grows up and he matures both as he grows older and he, grow, and he grows spiritually in the knowledge of the Lord. So Christ goes down in verse 52. It says he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He's growing up. And he's growing intellectually and he's growing spiritually. And this is where a lot of uh, myth is generated. Then for the next 18 years, nothing. 
we hear nothing of God's Son. He's buried, as it were, in obscurity in Nazareth. And people get into all kinds of speculation, which I don't have time to chase those rabbits today, but this is where people just go crazy with speculations about those 18 years, and yet the Scripture's pretty clear where Jesus is and what He's doing for 18 years. And then we come to Mark. And Jesus' first public appearance that we have given to us in the Bible after the temple is the baptism of Jesus Christ. How does he appear? How does Jesus appear in his first public appearance? Is he awing the teachers in the temple? No. Again, I quote from Al Martin. He he writes or he says that he, Christ, appears in the company of sinners, in the water ritual of sinners, at the hand of a sinner. This is his first appearance, public appearance that we have after his obscurity in Nazareth for 18 years. And the passage goes on, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now verse 4 of Mark 1 tells us that the baptism of John He describes it as a baptism of repentance. Now, if you would, turn in your Bibles for just a moment. I do want to take the time to read this. Turn to Luke chapter 3, because sometimes I think people think that baptism is, well, I feel bad about that. And I want you to see how repentance is described to us in in Luke chapter 3, verse 7 through 14. He said, therefore, John Baptist said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. These are really winning words. I'm sure that some of the the people that do the, you know, the how to win friends and influence people, I'm sure they love these words. So John says, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, show your repentance. Don't just say you're sorry. Bear fruit that is in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. Well, my dad's a preacher or my dad's a deacon or, hey, I was, I'm, I'm a member of so-and-so church. And I'd, we could, the applications there just are far and away. So don't say that you have Abraham as your father. For John says, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And same is true today. The axe is laid to the root of our lives. Our life is but a whisper. It's short. It's but like that. It's gone. And today I'm here and tomorrow I'm not. And the crowd's asking, verse 10, What then shall we do? And John answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food in it, do likewise. For tax collectors also came to be baptized. And he said to them, and and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? 
And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. In other words, he doesn't say to them, Well, just, just be sorry, and then feel better. He gives them fruits to bear, for, bear that shows repentance. And so John is engaging in a baptism of repentance. And of course, when Jesus comes to John to be baptized in the Jordan. We read in other accounts, Matthew and John, that, that Jesus says, excuse me, John says, whoa, no. I, I'm not, I can't baptize you, but I need to be baptized by you. And I hope that we can pick up on that thought maybe a little bit later on. But the point here is outwardly, Everything seems to be ordinary. Jeff Thomas writes, This king did not ride out to Enon in a chariot pulled by six white horses, preceded by heralds crying, Bow the knee! And accompanied by a cohort of soldiers brushing people aside, making way for him. No. Jesus comes like everybody else was coming from Jerusalem and all Judea that were coming out to hear John and be baptized by John in the River Jordan. Jesus is just in their midst, coming with them just like every other ordinary person is coming. Jesus is coming and He's coming to be baptized by John. It's ordinary. Nothing seems eye-catching as it were. But then we come to verses 10 and 11. And we go to the extraordinary. And John tells us, excuse me, Mark tells us of Jesus and John. That Let me get back to my text. I'm in the wrong place. He tells, he tells us, uh, that Mark tells us that when he came up out of the water, this would be Jesus, we understand. He's gone down into the water. He's been baptized by John Baptist. And he's coming out of the water. And Mark says, immediately. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Now I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I'll just say the language here is difficult. Who's he describing? Who sees the, the heavens open? And who, who comes out of the water? And there's a lot of ink spilled on this. Well, obviously Jesus. I mean, that's first and foremost. But as I think we can note from John's writing, John Baptist sees it too. So it's something that's not just a personal experience Jesus has. Now, Mark describes the opening of the heavens. He, he describes it by saying, the heavens being torn open. Now, that's classic Mark. The other Gospels define this in a much gentler way. They just simply say the heavens were opened. It's like Rhoda when Peter was knocking on the door and she doesn't open the door for him. She's so excited and she runs back in to tell the rest of them. She doesn't, she doesn't just open the door. But Mark uses another word. He uses the same verb. It's, it's schizo or schizo. It's the verb that means to split, to tear, to cleave. And it's the same verb that is used when we read about Jesus at his death and he cries out with a loud voice 
And immediately, what happens? The veil of the temple is schizo, schizo. It's torn apart from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. Clearly indicating this isn't just a, oh, well, look, the curtain's old and it ripped. No, this is a divine act of God that just rips it open. Well, here, Mark uses that same word. The heavens are just ripped open. It's almost like there's a violence in it. In Isaiah 64, great verse, I'll, in verse 1, this, uh, the prophet is praying and he prays, Oh, Lord, please come down. Rend the heavens. Rip open the heavens and come down. Same concept. And so the heavens are torn open. And I don't know if there's any noise that goes with that. It doesn't say anything about that. That would all be speculation. But there is this obvious divine act. I don't know what it would look like to see the heavens ripped open. I suppose it would be similar to at the end of time when we see the, the, the skies and the universe just rolled up as a scroll. I suppose it would be something similar to that. And, and so this, this divine act happens. And what, what would you expect to happen next? Something big and grand. Well, it is big and grand, but it's quiet. (laughs) And what happens next is the Spirit descends from heaven like a dove. It's like the tearing open of the heavens was the pathway. And here comes the Spirit of God descending. Now, God can appear in whatever form He chooses to. God appeared in the form of a burning bush God appeared in the form of a of a man this dove is a visible manifestation of God and in John chapter 1 verses 32 through 34 when John the Baptist sees the dove he knows that this is the Messiah that's the identifier It's also a prophetic event. In Isaiah 11, when we read about the branch from the stump of Jesse, we read the Spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him. And here it is, the heavens tear apart, the Spirit descends in the form of a dove, and it rests upon Jesus Christ. Now, recall for a moment in your mind the flood and the dove. What was the flood about? It was about the wickedness of man and the righteousness of God. And God cleansed the earth. And He did it in the form of a flood. And the sign that the righteous wrath of God was over was a dove that Noah sent and He returned. That was the indicator that the righteous wrath of God was satisfied at that moment and the flood is over, the judgment is done. Well, the dove descends upon Jesus. He is the one who will completely and totally exhaust the wrath of God against sinners. 
The analogy we've used before is a burned over area. When you burn a field, you start a backfire. Or you burn the wood, you start a backfire. Why? Because when the fire gets, the, fire, the big fire that you've got going, when it gets to that burned over area, it's deprived. It's deprived of fuel. And it just it burns out. Well, Christ is that burned over area, if you please. He has already taken in Himself the wrath of God. There is no more wrath of God against God's people. It has been exhausted in Jesus Christ. Well, the dove comes. Thirdly, we're told a voice came from heaven. Now, three times in the Gospels do we, do we read about God audibly speaking. Three times. One is at the Transfiguration, where the Lord says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The other is hours before the crucifixion. And, and the Father says in a voice that is audible, I have glorified it when Christ prays to glorify your name. He's, the Father answers in an audible way. And Jesus says to others standing there, I'm glad you heard it because this voice wasn't for my sake, it's for your sake. And so the voice says, I have glorified, I've glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. And so, and then here in Mark. Now all of them are about Christ. And they, they focus upon Jesus Christ. And so we have in this voice from heaven, you are my beloved son. It doesn't say the father said this, but Jesus is only the son in relationship to the father. He's not my son. He's not your son. He's not the spirit's son. He's only the father's son. So I know this voice is the voice of the father saying, this is my son. This is an identification. Jesus Christ is my son, an approbation of approval in whom I am well pleased. Now, we've tried to just sort of unpack the passage in that way. Now I want to spend just a couple of minutes with you in words of application. One of the big questions that you have when you read this is why would Jesus be baptized? John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. Well, that's not a really a so, so much of an easy question to answer, honestly. There are various answers given to why John, excuse me, why Jesus was baptized by John. Some say, well, his baptism was an endorsement of John's ministry. He endorsed John. Okay. Some say that in being baptized by John, he is identifying with Gentiles because the way a Gentile became a proselyte to Judaism was he underwent water baptism. That right? Some say, well, this is an indication of he's, you know, identifying with Gentiles. And then some say, well, no, really, it's an example. Jesus didn't really need to be baptized, but he, but he did it anyhow. And He did it because we should do it. Since He did it, you know, the old bracelet thing, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus was baptized. Well, so should I, I should be baptized. And they see it as an example. And, and there's some truth to that because Jesus is born of a woman. He's born under the law. Did Jesus go off for sacrifices? 
Well, I suppose he did. That was the law. Uh, did Jesus give a tithe? Well, I suppose he did. That was the law. Did he pay his taxes? Well, we know he did because he took the money out of the fish's mouth. In other words, Jesus did things that were lawful. And this is lawful. And so they say, see, Jesus is submitting himself. He's doing that which was lawful. So should you. And there's a truth to that. So should you. But while this list seems to be legit, it does seem to me to be a bit incomplete. I don't really think it puts the finger on the nerve here. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. We have a very uh, revealing conversation here. Matthew 3 verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And here's Jesus' answer. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's not fitting, he doesn't say, for me, John, to do this. But it's fitting for us to do this. John, it's fitting for you to administer baptism, and it's fitting for me to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. So John is included in this us. John rejects Jesus being baptized. Why? Because he says, I'm... I'm not worthy to do this. You ought to be baptizing me. I'm, I'm not worthy to baptize you. Now, just a, just a brief excursus here, very brief. You remember when Mary, who was expecting, comes to visit Elizabeth, who's John Baptist's mother, and she's near term with her pregnancy. And when Mary comes, what happens? The baby and Elizabeth's womb leaps with joy. And then Elizabeth says to Mary, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She realizes that the child that Mary is carrying is the Holy One. Now surely, as John Baptist grows up, he wasn't always this woolly prophet in the wilderness. He was a boy too. He was a child too. Surely, as John grows up, his mother Elizabeth tells him about the day that Mary came. By the way, we know that humanly speaking, they're cousins, Jesus and John. Surely, Elizabeth tells John about that great day. I mean, she felt John jump with joy in her. Surely, later on, she would say, John, 
I remember when Mary came to visit, and you you're not even born yet, but you're but you're jumping around with joy. Because the mother of my Lord had come to see us. So when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, it's not that he doesn't know who Jesus is. He recognizes him. And he recognizes him at a very holy man, apparently. Because he says, I, I, I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus tells John, it's fitting for us to fulfill all the righteous requirements of God. But what was the righteous requirements of John? He sent as the forerunner. We looked at that. And the purpose of him was to prepare the way, but he had another purpose, and that purpose was to identify the Messiah, which he does the day after he baptized him and talking to other people. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God. He's identifying him. John says, or it's, it's reported in John one thirty one. John says this, I myself did not know him, didn't know his deity. I did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. The purpose here is that he would be revealed. Jesus would be revealed. And John identifies him as the Messiah. And after that, the ministry of John, while it goes on, really, that's his high watermark. John has done what God intended for him to do. And his ministry just kind of pales out. And the ministry of Jesus will increase. Even John would say, I must decrease, but he must increase. And that's exactly what you see. John's fulfilled the righteous requirements that God has has ordained for him. He was the forerunner. He was the identifier. He was the baptizer in which Jesus was identified as the Son of God, the Messiah. What were the righteous requirements of Jesus? Why did Jesus come to the earth? What's the point? He comes to save. Well, how is He going to save? Is He going to do it from the portals of glory? No. He will be born of a woman born under the law, which law He will keep perfectly. And He will be the spotless Lamb of God who will be crucified as our federal head. Our sins are put upon Him. And that is the means by which He accomplishes redemption. Jesus did not save us from heaven, but He came to earth. And this appearance is not a theophany. This isn't some brief appearance of God like a spirit in the dove or the burning bush or man in the fire. No, this appearance is not a theophany. This appearance is an incarnation. He is born, born of a woman. Born under the law. For the purpose of that was to redeem them who are under the law. God took flesh. And he was, according to Isaiah 53, 22, he was numbered with the transgressors. And here he is. 
first public appearance. Here he comes. He's with all the sinners. Looks plain, looks ordinary from the outside. Here he is. It, it's right, John. It, it behooves us. It's our, it's our duty, John, to fulfill all righteousness. You are to do this because you are to identify me. I am to do this because I identify with the people I came to save. And who did he come to save? Sinners. We looked at that, I think, last week. Not the righteous, but the sinners. I must be careful here, but I can't hardly help myself but draw some parallel here. Uh, This uh, baptism of Jesus by John being a harbinger of another baptism. And that is in Luke 12, 50. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about being immersed, covered, flooded with the sins of his people and the wrath of God exhausting itself on him. He says that I have another, I have a baptism, excuse me, to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. How focused I am. What a burden this is. But I have a baptism. I will be immersed in the wrath of God. I will be there as a sinner in the place of sinners. So, conclusion. Perhaps the simplest but most profound answer to why was Jesus baptized by John is that he identifies with sinners. He is alongside those he came to save. He became flesh. And now he's with them. He's ready. He's willing to fulfill all righteousness. To take our sins upon him and His righteousness be imputed to us. And at the Jordan, in the waters of this ritual for sinners, Jesus identifies Himself with those sinners. Now by the way, in our baptism, we identify with Jesus. We identify with His death, His burial, and His resurrection. In a few minutes, you will see the Gospel preached. You will witness Sister Ella being buried in the waters of baptism. And being brought up out of that water of baptism, signifying not actually washing away any sin. That's only done by the blood of Christ. But signifying her union with Christ. That she, when Christ died for my sins, was buried and raised for our justification, that I I am in Him. And I'm identifying with Him in this public ordinance. It's the gospel being preached. Flip the coin. In Jesus' baptism... He identifies with me and you and his people. He identifies with sinners. 
I am a sinner, and I am in need of washing, of being clean. And sometimes my own filthiness is just shocking to me. But Christ redeems us by cleansing us and by washing us, not in water, but through His blood. But when I'm baptized, I'm identifying that I am one with Him, that He has washed me clean. But in His baptism, He's identifying with me. And when Jesus came up from the waters, there was a voice. And the voice was, this is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hmm. Have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? I'm not talking about some sort of charismatic gifts. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is what happens at regeneration. In other words, have you been born again? Have you been washed by and in the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you heard the Father, not audibly, but have you heard the Father speak to you in your heart, tearing away all stone and speaking to you in your heart this is my beloved son I'm pleased with him with Jesus Christ well you might not be all I can say is if you're not God have mercy on you let's call God himself is pleased with his son and lastly have you identified with Jesus have you made that public profession and public identity with Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism? Well, if you hear the, the Father and you believe that you're born again, then you should do that as well. So the Lord bless us. Lord bless you, Ella. And I want us to get ready now to, to hear the gospel, not verbally, but through baptism. Um, let's have prayer, and then we want to stand and sing hymn 301. Pastor Tyler, anything you want to say before that? Um, after the prayer, we'll sing hymn 301. Sister Ella, you can go on back and start getting ready. And uh, maybe by the time we finish this, all will be, be ready. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace. We thank you for your willingness to fulfill all righteousness. May we, like John, be as willing to fulfill that which is required of us to be faithful in our profession and in our life and following Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Let's stand, if you would, and turn to hymn 301. Uh, there, there is a fountain. We'll sing all the verses. <laughs>